The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans 6 this morning, and we're going to continue our series uh, through Romans. Uh, I don't have slides today, so you're going to have to listen and maybe take notes for yourself. Uh, and so that's good for all of us. Uh, keep you on your toes a little bit more today. Um, but I've got a pretty simple outline today that you shouldn't have a hard time following. So uh, hopefully uh, you can keep track with me pretty well. So we're going to be in Romans 6, uh, verses 15 through 19 this morning. Uh, but before I, I read the passage, uh, we live in a world that, that talks constantly about freedom or really about individual autonomy. And uh, so from philosophy classes to Hallmark cards to Disney movies, we are constantly told in our culture not to let society tell you who you should be. You know, don't let your parents tell you who, she, who you should be. Don't let religion tell you who you should be. Schools, any of those things. Don't let anyone tell you who you ought to be. No. Choose your own path, find your own course, do your own thing, and so break free from responsibility, break free from, from, from restraint, and just be who you want to be. Chase your happiness. Don't we hear that all the time? It's everywhere. And, and so our great stories, well, great in italics, our popular stories romanticize the person who, who leaves all of that behind and just does what he wants to do to make himself happy. And some of those stories are very compelling. You know, and it's because, in part, we don't like responsibility. We don't like someone telling us what to do. So, so who doesn't at times feel the urge to, to leave behind responsibility, obligation, and just go do what you think is going to make you happy and satisfy your heart? But ironically, the only way that you can actually think those things and the only reason you're here today is because someone chose not to live for themselves and to love you sacrificially, to care for you, and to raise you. And it's hard not to see that a society built on love and responsibility is going to far exceed one that's built on individual autonomy and, and, and self so, so radical autonomy, as much as our society wants to, to romanticize it and, and lift it up as a good thing, it, it is not a good thing. It is instead selfish, dark, and terribly destructive. And, but, 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 but the question I want to particularly think about this morning is, is it even possible? Can you live a radically autonomous life? And so can you break free from all restraint? Can you actually see what is the best path to my happiness and truly chase it with reckless abandon? Well, Paul's going to answer in the passage before us today. Romans 6 verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? 
But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So Paul is pretty clear there that true autonomy is impossible. But but to fully appreciate this, we need to take a moment and just set this passage in context. So, so remember uh, from our study that Romans 6 consists of two major sections that each begin with an important question. So, so the first question is in verse 1, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So, so in other words, if God's grace will always be greater than whatever sin I can commit well, then I might as well just sin because God's grace is always going to be greater. That's the question. So what's the point in fighting sin? Well, Paul answers in verses 2 through 14 that continuing in sin for a Christian denies the fundamental intent of the gospel, which is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and and become like Him, that we would take on His righteousness. So notice the promise in verse 14. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And that's a great promise. That's a wonderful verse that we talked about last week. And so it's a powerful conclusion, but, but God knows the weasel that's in all of our hearts. And He knows how sinners can take a wonderful truth of God and twist it into a terrible conclusion. And so verse 15 follows with a second important question that Paul's going to answer in verses 15 through 23. And that question is, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? So so the question there, so so Paul here anticipates a foolish response to the assertion that he just made. So, So again, verse 14 ends by saying, you are not under law, but you are under grace. And last week we saw that that simply means that we are no longer under the Old Testament law. Instead, we live in the age of grace, defined by Christ's work on the cross. So so in Christ, we have power to overcome sin. We have power to live a changed life and to become genuinely righteous. And, And we talked last week about the fact that that's an awesome truth. And yet again, we're all weasels. And so unfortunately, people often twist the the age of grace. They twist verse 14 into something very different from what God intends. And and the basic question that Paul anticipates is this. Well, Well, if the death of Christ has set me free from the Old Testament law, does that mean that God no longer expects me to obey rules? That, That I can come up with my own shape and form of godliness and go whatever direction I think is right? You know, did the death of Christ free me from the need to pursue holiness? Does grace mean that I am autonomous? That I can choose my own path and that I can kind of make up for myself what what I think is a life that's going to please God? 
And that's a very relevant question because many modern Christians, well, they probably wouldn't say it out loud because that would be really bad, but, but they really do believe that, that question that verse 15 is asking. So, so they understand the freedom from the law that we have in Christ as meaning that, that, that God has basically opened the floodgates and given me the freedom to create whatever Christian, Christianity I think is right. So, so for example, you know, just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a lady who, who, who came to me for counseling. She, she, she doesn't attend here, uh, but she came to me for counsel and sought us out. And, and, and the reason she went, and, and this lady, she professes to be a Christian. And she indeed uh, you know, at least said that she had spent a good amount of time in, in, in an evangelical gospel preaching church. But the reason she came to me for counsel is because she wanted me to help her Get her, she wanted me to help convince her boyfriend to move back in with her so that they could continue what was essentially an immoral relationship. You know, and I was stunned you know, to hear someone who, who claims to believe the Bible and has come to a conservative pastor like me, and she thinks that, that I'm going to be on board with, with pushing this man to continue in immorality. But you know, the reality is, is that's not all that uncommon within broader American Christianity. I mean, many professing believers would claim that the grace of God essentially frees me to make up whatever form of godliness I think is right, versus it actually being bound to what the Scriptures say. Now, I recognize that's, that's kind of an extreme example, especially for the audience that's in this room. But, but I could cite plenty of lesser examples that bleed into churches like ours. You know, where Christians justify profanity, immodesty, ungodly entertainment, and all sorts of other things, and they do so by sweeping it under the rug of grace. We, we think that grace means that I can make up what a godly life is. And so they believe, essentially, in a form of Christian autonomy. So is that true? Well, Paul thought you might ask, and so he answers the question in verses 15 and 16. So, so first of all, he answers at the end of verse 15 by simply saying, may it never be. So, so you could also say, perish the thought. If you were raised on the King James, the King James says, God forbid that we would use grace to excuse sin. And what Paul is saying there is that very idea is reprehensible. And then verse 16 follows with Paul's primary reason why grace does not give us autonomy to do as we please. It says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So I'd like to break this, this really important verse down into three truths. The first truth that Paul asserts in this verse is that everyone is a slave. Everyone is a slave. So in other words, no one is truly autonomous. No, instead, you are a slave. And not only that, he says you can only choose between two masters. You can either be a slave of sin or you can be a slave of God. 
Now, now Paul will, will clarify in verse 19, or in verse 19, he, he begins by saying, I'm speaking in human terms. So, so the point there is, is that, that slavery is an imperfect analogy because, because our relationship to God is, is much more than that of a slave to his master. We, we just sang about adoption and so the, about the fact that God is our father. So, so don't get hung up on, on the negative connotations and all the issues with, with the picture of slavery, right? Because every analogy breaks down at some point. And, and of course, slavery does not perfectly, it's not perfectly analogous to our relationship with God. So, so that being said, you know, Paul here focuses on, and instead we need to focus on the point that Paul is making, which is simply that you must choose between one of two masters. There's no third option where you are your own master. And of course, Paul got this idea from Jesus himself. What, what did Jesus say in Matthew 6, verse 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, or, or really any other master. All those things, any rival to God. So God says there are two ways to live. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of God. And, and Jesus also said, that the unbeliever is not truly free when he said in John 8, verse 34, truly, I truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, you know, talking there about a life of the, the life of the unbeliever is a slave of sin. Now, now, maybe you hear that, and you're sitting there and saying, okay, the, the Bible says everyone you know, has to choose a master and either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness, but, but I don't know. Now, I look at unbelievers and they don't look like slaves to me. They, they look like they're doing what they want to do. It looks like no one is telling them what to do, and, and it really seems like they are making their own ultimate choices. They are in control of their lives. So, so how can Paul and Jesus say that we are all slaves? I think, first of all, it, it is worth saying that our culture is absolutely lying through its teeth when it claims to want to help you to be free, right? Because, because they want you to be free as long as you conform to their philosophy and their thinking, right? And the moment that you buck against that, they are going to demand your allegiance. So, so the worldly philosophies of our day are, are the most intolerant religion that is out there. But with that said, I mean, aren't unbelievers free in the choices they make? I mean, is it, and, and folks, it is true that, that they generally do what they feel like doing. But, but the problem is, is that the feelings that drive the unbeliever are ultimately the result of an evil game of satanic manipulation. You know, we live in God's universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. And we are accountable to God. That is evident everywhere around us. But sin blinds people to that reality. And it enslaves the sinner by deceiving him into thinking that he is his own boss. And so he thinks that he is free. But sin is really pulling the strings. And therefore, it leads him down a path of destruction and death, and he doesn't even realize where he is going because of how deceived he is. 
So the unbeliever is not free. He is a deceived slave of sin. And then the second truth in this passage is that your life reveals your master. So the first truth in verse 16 is that everyone is a slave. The second truth is, is that your life reveals your master. Now, now this is important because lots of people in our culture think that just simply calling yourself a Christian makes you one. But, but the reality is, God says that what really matters is not what you claim to be true, what you speak, but what really matters in identifying your master is how you live. I mean, verse 16 simply says, you are slaves of the one you obey. So the point is simple. If you live enslaved to sin, then sin is your master. And if you live as a servant of God, then God is your master. Now, now I want to emphasize the word, uh, the, the idea there that, that we are striving to obey. So, so, so none of us, none of us as Christians ever obey God perfectly. So, so if you read verse 16 as saying that, that slaves of God never uh, fall short, never disappoint the Lord, then, then you're missing the point. So, so, so we strive to serve God. And we are challenged here to, to understand that. And I want to emphasize that because, because sensitive souls, you know, in the moment a sensitive soul reads verse 16, that then we can immediately begin to focus on every sin issue in our life. You know, and so, if you tend to be a more introspective person, you hear verse 16, you hear slave of God, and the first thing that pops into your mind is, oh, I did this and this and this and this this week, that fell short of slavery to God. And what Satan will do is he will take those things and he will use a verse like this to sow seeds of doubt in your heart about your relationship to God. But we know that verse 16 does not demand perfect obedience to, to be a child of God, because every command in Romans 6 assumes that we all still have a lot of spiritual progress to make. So, so none of us obey God perfectly. We all have a long way to go. So, so don't let Satan use verse 16 to create doubts in your heart that God doesn't intend. And, and we'll say more about that later on this morning. But, but, but that said, God is saying here in verse 16 that a true Christian longs to please God. And a true Christian strives to obey His will. And so if that is not your heart, you, know, you might call yourself a Christian, identify yourself as a Christian, but, but you know that you're just playing the game. And your heart is not to fully submit, to, to, to respond to what the Scriptures say. Then, then you might need to question whether or not your faith is real. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. So what matters a whole lot more than the talk that you talk is the walk that you walk. And so everyone is a slave, and your life reveals your master. And then the third truth of verse 16 is that your master reveals your eternal destiny. So, so notice that verse 16 concludes, the second half of the verse says, that we are, uh, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And notice, jump down to verse 23, because verse 23 clarifies what is at stake in that statement. So, so verse 23, one of the most familiar verses in Romans, says, for the wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so the contrast is between eternal life and death. So, so death there is not just physical death, it, it's eternity in hell. So, so the consequences here are life with God in heaven or life under God's wrath in hell. That's the consequences. And so verse 16 is saying that the slave of sin is on his way to hell. And the slave of righteousness is on his way to heaven. Now, I have to be clear in saying that. That that Paul is not saying that that we can earn heaven. That by your slavery to, to righteousness, you earn a place in heaven. And we know he can't mean that because verse 23 says that the gift of God is eternal life. So if you end up in hell, you earn it, right? It says the wages of sin is death. So so we earn a place in hell. But no one earns a place in heaven. It is a gift of God. The, The only way you can be there someday is by the blood of Christ received by faith. It is through Him alone that we are God's children. So, so obedience does not determine my eternal destiny, but it does reveal what's in my heart, the, the truthfulness of my confession. So, so, so in light of that, verse 15 asks, is it okay for Christians to live in sin since we are under God's grace? And what's Paul's answer? Absolutely not. If sin is your master, then then you will face God's eternal judgment in hell. And God is saying here to us in this passage that there is no such thing as a true Christian who does not submit to God. I mean, that's the point that he's making. Now, that's very heavy, but but it is so important because, again, I've talked with many people over the years who have no interest in in truly submitting to God's Word. And yet, at the very same time, they are absolutely confident that they're going to heaven someday. Now, I'm a Christian, of course God's going to take me to heaven. Why wouldn't He? And yet, yet they have no interest in, in really submitting to what the Scriptures say, at least not in the parts that are inconvenient for them. And so, I want to urge you, if they fall into that category, do not fall for Satan's lie. I mean, one of Satan's, I mean, Satan loves it. He loves to create a false assurance in someone who is not truly a child of God. And there, there, there are few more better tactics that he can use than to convince an unbeliever that everything's good and he is on his way to heaven. And so we need to understand that true Christians strive by the grace of God to obey his will. Because they're slaves of righteousness. And verse 19 will say that we must live it out. So so if that is not in your heart, and again, we're we're all imperfect. We all have a long ways to go. But if your heart is cold towards the Scriptures, and there is not in, in your heart a desire to submit to the will of God, and you are determined to remain on the throne of your heart, or maybe you're just sitting there and, and you know, I mean, you're, you're a little ruffled and you're a little uh, just unstable and, and working through what this passage is saying, that, then it would really be good for you to sit down either with me or with another trusted Christian counselor 
and, and just walk through you know, what is going on in your heart. Are you a child of God? And where can you find assurance? Because there is nothing more important than making sure you are right with God and that you have a, a biblical ground of assurance that's driving your hope for eternity. So folks, I realize that's heavy stuff. That's not comfortable stuff to talk about. But, but it, but it, and, and so if you are spiritually weak and immature, I recognize that that can be crushing. I mean, I, I've been through that myself. And yet, aren't you thankful that Jesus knows our weakness and He is patient with our weakness? And therefore, right after drawing a hard line in the sand in verse 16, verses 17 and 18 follow with strong encouragement. Look at what he says in Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. He says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So, so it seems like, like Paul knew that some people in the Roman church might be crushed by verse 16. And therefore, Paul reminds them of how God's grace had been active in their lives. And this isn't the only time in Scripture where, where God follows a strong exhortation, a strong warning with, with strong encouragement. So, so keep your finger here and turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. So, so Hebrews chapter 6 it is one of the strongest warnings that you will find in the New Testament. Verses 4 through 6. And I want to read verses 4 through 6 to us. It's a really good compliment to our passage. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. It says there, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So, so what Paul, or excuse me, well, whoever the author of Hebrews is, what, what the author of Hebrews is describing there is someone who has professed to be saved and, and shown at least some evidence of conversion. So this is a professing Christian. And then notice the warning in verse 6. And then have fallen away. Walked away from the truth of God. He says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So that's saying that, that to walk away from the truth of the gospel is a dangerous, dangerous step. It is a strong warning with eternal consequences. So that's kind of scary stuff, right? But then notice what he follows up with in verses 9 and 10, he says in verse 9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, so, so it's worth emphasizing that yes, the New Testament consistently teaches that the fruits of your life are a vital reflection of whether or not the Holy Spirit is in your heart. And at times, we do need to just step back 
and, and examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. And so God doesn't want us just to take it for granted. But, generally speaking, when the Scriptures use the fruits of our lives as, in order to, to give us evidence of whether or not we are truly saved, the point is not so much to create doubt. The point is to create assurance. So that's the point, really, of 1 John. And the book of 1 John spends the, the majority of the book walking through evidences that, that Christ is in your heart. And the point of it is not to make you doubt and question your faith. No, no, how does he end the book? He says, these are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So, so the goal is ultimately that we would see the evidences of grace in our lives and be encouraged that Christ is in our hearts. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. So he stops to rehearse what God has done in these believers and what he has done in every genuine believer. And he does this because we easily forget and because Satan wants us to despair. And so we need to remember, we need to stop and see what God has done. And so first of all, he reminds the Romans and he reminds us, every genuine believer, that we were once slaves to sin. He says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. And so it's good for us to remember once in a while that when God found us, we were not lovely and attractive. You know, and some, most of us still are not lovely and attractive on the outside. You know, but no, when God found us, we were, we were slaves to sin, bound for hell. You know, God loved us when we did not love Him. God reached out to us when we were hostile towards His will. And He opened our eyes to the glorious beauty of Christ. And notice, He goes on in verse 17 and reminds them that you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So, so we obeyed the gospel. Now, that is a very interesting description of what it means to get saved. So, so notice how God-centered verses 17 and 18 are. So first of all, he, he doesn't say, you know, thanks be to me that, that I reached out to God and I figured this out, does he? No, he says, thanks be to God for what God has done in my life. And then as well, it's not real clear in our English translations, but in the Greek, it is very clear that the last verb committed there is not saying that I committed to the teachings of God. No, no the verb there is in the passive voice. And so, and so what he's saying there is that God committed me to the form of teaching, to his word. So, so at conversion, what he's saying there is that the Holy Spirit worked in my heart and he created in me a responsive heart to the truth of God. And so God moved me to himself. And God committed me to his word. He caused my eyes to open. He caused me to love the truth of God. And he made me a new creature in Christ. He changed me. And as a result, uh, he says there in verse 17 as well, that we became obedient from the heart. 
Now, now that's an interesting way to describe conversion, isn't it? He describes conversion there as obedience. And we don't generally think of it that way, right? Like, like we think of the gospel uh, purely as the offer of a free gift. I mean, how is obedience part of getting saved? Well, actually, the, the truth is, is that you can't receive Christ without responding to His authority, His Lordship. And, and so the gospel includes the command to submit. So, so Acts 17, now Paul is preaching at Mars Hill, and what does he say? He says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He commands it as our Lord. And so, there really is a sense in which getting saved is obeying the gospel. And praise the Lord, Paul says, that the Romans had done that. They obeyed the gospel based on God's work in their heart. And every genuine believer in this room should also remember and rejoice in that gracious work of God in you. That that God loved you when you did not love Him. He sought you when you did not seek Him. And He transformed your life. And He transformed your eternity. He changed you from the inside out. And finally, verse 18 reminds them and reminds us that we became slaves of righteousness. Verse 18 says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now now notice again God's initiative in that. When the Romans got saved, God freed them from sin. Now, does that mean that They lost all desire for sin, all temptation for sin, and they never sinned again. Well, of course not, right? So so remember that when the word sin is used in the singular throughout this section of Romans, it's not so much talking about individual acts of sin. It's talking about sin as as an authority, a power that rules over the heart of the unbeliever. And so what he means there is that when you got saved, God broke that power. He freed you from sin's dominion. It's slavery over your heart. And He also made you slaves of righteousness. I like how Leon Morris puts it. He says, those set free do not wander in a moral vacuum. They are slaves to righteousness. So there's no middle ground, right? When you got saved... God broke sin's mastery over you, and at the same time, He made you a slave of righteousness. And again, Paul's purpose in verses 17 and 18 is to encourage the Romans by reminding them of what God had already done in their lives. That's why he begins verse 17 by saying, thanks be to God. So, So they could look back and they could see evidence of God's work. That God opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel. And God had transformed their lives. And every Christian in this room should be encouraged the same way. You know, so yes, I mean, the idea of slavery to God is, is kind of intimidating, right? It's intimidating to think about what God demands and my goodness, how much have I fallen short of that this week? I mean, how can I possibly live up to this text? And so I want to encourage you to... to and, and, and by the way, if that's your response to this text, that's a good sign, right? That's a good sign because the Spirit of God's in your heart and there is a holy discontentment in you that wants to be like Christ. If you're just like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. 
and there's no brokenness before the word. That's what ought to be frightful. So, so we, but we look at this text, and it can be very intimidating. And so I want to encourage you to remember what God has already done. And he drew you to himself. And think of all the times that he continues to convict you of sin. And if you've been saved for a period of time, if you look back and reflect, you you can probably see just time after time and evidence after evidence of how God's Spirit is at work in you and he is changing you and he is making you new. So, So remember what God has done and give thanks and then be encouraged that God is indeed at work in your life. And we're going to say so much more about that when we get to Romans chapter 8. And then if you have never received Christ, then I pray that you will experience the journey that's laid out there in verses 17 and 18. You know, and first and foremost, you need to recognize that no matter how religious you might be, no matter how many good works you have done, no matter how much you think that you're better than the guy down the street, that then all of us are born enslaved to sin and condemned to hell. All of us. That's what he's saying there at the beginning of verse 17. And so without Christ, we are slaves to sin. But Christ can rescue any sinner from that slavery and give new life that that transforms your life today and for all of eternity. And and there's not something you do to to achieve that. No, instead, you, you just receive Christ. You come to Christ with faith, recognizing his, 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 his cross work and His authority, you come to Christ with empty hands and you receive Him. And verse 23 says that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We just come to Him and we receive His free gift. And so if you have never done that, or if you've got questions about what that means, we would love to talk with you today about how you can know Christ as your Savior. Well, returning to the text, Paul has asked a very important question. Does grace mean that we're free to live how we want? And he answered the question in verse 16. And then he pauses in verses 17 and 18 to give us some great encouragement. So give thanks for what God has done, but but don't stop there. Wow, I've come a long ways. No, instead, God's work in you must lead you to continue to work. So so notice the challenge in verse 19. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Now, now last week, when we were in verses 12 through 14, I I talked about the tension in Romans 6 between the indicative and the imperative. And we see that tension again here in verses 18 and 19. Because verse 18 tells us a wonderful gospel truth. It says that we were freed from sin. So, So God did something incredible in the heart of every Christian. But that doesn't mean that I'm already perfect. And it doesn't mean that spiritual growth just happens apart from my effort. No. Verse 19 says that I must apply what Christ 
has provided. And, and specifically, it says that just as I once presented my members, and, and really the idea there would be your body, but, but ultimately all of you, just as I once presented my members as slaves to impurity, he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. So God commands me to present myself as a slave to him. Now that verb present is the same verb he used up in verse 13. And it's the same verb that he uses again in Romans 12 verse 1 where he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present yourself a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so the picture there of that verb present is is really, as, as Romans 12 verse 1 says, of presenting an offering at the altar. That you are to take your body and your whole being and you are to present it to the Lord as a reasonable sacrifice. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. I give my life to Him. I present myself to Him. But, but notice that this time, in, in chapter 6, verse 19, he doesn't say to stop presenting yourself to sin and instead present yourself to God. No, no instead notice that he draws a comparison. Which is interesting. He says, just as you once lived this way, he says, so now present your members as slaves to God. So so what he's saying there is that when you were an unbeliever, you were fully devoted to chasing after sin. You chased your will, your passions with all of your heart. We weren't half-hearted in our disobedience to God. And now he says, with that same passion, pursue Christ. So what he's saying there is that no unbeliever should pursue sin with more passion than you pursue the righteousness of God. So can you say that? You know, think of how zealously some of your friends live for themselves. Think of how passionately they chase their own lusts. You chase Christ with that same zeal, that same passion. I hope that you do. And of course, we all need to be challenged with that often. And we have to do that because notice the contrasting ends of both lives. So first, he says that pursuing lawlessness simply results in further lawlessness. Now, now we've talked about the fact that, that Satan wants us to believe that lawless is the way to go. Do your own thing. Break free from all restraint. You know, and he tells us that freedom and autonomy will breed happiness and joy. But of course, we've seen that the lawless person is not truly free. He's not actually lawless. He's under the law of sin. And he is enslaved to sin and deception. And, and rather than leading to joy, lawlessness only spirals, he says, into further lawlessness. And we talked about this quite a bit when we were in Romans chapter 1. Remember that last summer? It's been a while now. now but we saw in Romans chapter 1 that, that one of God's most heavy judgments is just simply to remove his restraint and to let the sinner pursue the destruction that his own sin brings about. And what we think is autonomy is instead a march to pain, misery, and destruction. And we see the evidence of that all around us, right? 
But as people reject God, it spirals into further rebellion. And it is not making our world happier. No. I mean, it's all leading to an increasingly lonely, angry, depressed, and unsatisfied culture. So lawlessness is not a path to freedom and joy. It's a path to misery. And in contrast, God promises that pursuing righteousness results in sanctification. Now, I imagine that we might look at that as a little bit of a downer, like as far as the result goes. Because we don't generally think of sanctification, or or just, and sanctification, by the way, is just another word for holiness. We, We don't generally think of holiness as a great reward. We, we think of holiness as a means to get the reward that we really want, right? Like, like, I'll serve God, I'll be holy, so that God gives me lots of rewards in heaven. And, and maybe if I do a really good job, He'll also give me some cool stuff along the way down here on earth. We, we don't love holiness. But sanctification, is it, what Paul is telling us here, that sanctification is itself a great reward. Because... To be holy is to be like God. And to be holy is to let you do the thing for which you were created, which was to glorify Him. And and as well, I think of Psalm 16, verse 11, which says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, So how do you live in the presence of the Lord? You live there with a holy life. So so holiness is a great reward. Now, now the truth is, is that deceitful lusts might make holiness look very distasteful, right? Because your flesh is always resisting the the call to a life of holiness and purity. And and yet, a right view of of the goodness and the glory of God, when, when you see the goodness and glory of God, it makes holiness look beautiful. Because what is the most beautiful thing in all the universe? It's God. So so to be like God, to be holy like God is, is a good end. It is a beautiful thing. And and so much better than than anything else that we could pursue. So so I began today by noting that that our world dangles autonomy before us as an attractive, all-satisfying path. And it can sound so appealing. And so we convince ourselves of nonsense. Like the idea that the grace of God frees me to just be autonomous and to do what I want and to go my own way. But God says there is no such thing as autonomy. Everyone has a master. And you can either choose the tyrannical reign of sin or you can choose our loving, wonderful, heavenly Father. And so if you have never received Christ, you've been chasing the dream, the the mirage of autonomy and temporal happiness and pleasure as better than Christ, then I would urge you today to repent of your sin, to see Christ in His beauty and His authority and as the Savior of the world, and repent and come to Him. Because He is a good Master. And if you are saved, don't get discouraged. See the beauty of God's holiness. 
and press towards Him. Press towards Christ and live out the transforming intent of the gospel because it is good. It is good. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the exhortation of this passage. Thank You for the important clarifications that it makes. And Father, I pray for any who are here who do not yet know Jesus as Savior that today they would obey the gospel and they would fall on their knees and repent before You and receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And for those of us who know You as Savior, God, I pray that You would renew in our hearts a vision to live out the transformation that You are accomplishing in our lives. Oh God, help us not to serve sin this week. Help us to pursue Christ. And God, please give us grace and strength to fight sin. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And God, make us more and more into your image that we might rejoice in you and be satisfied in you. And so thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the gospel. And oh God, we pray that we would walk in its strength day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.